On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, this is DeRay, and there's some changes coming to Pod Save the People that I wanted to share. First, please join me in welcoming Kaya Henderson and Diara Ballinger as news contributors to the show. I'm pumped to have them join us, help build out and round out this conversation every week about the latest news uh, that you didn't know and what we can do about it. Today is Brittany and Clint's last episode, uh, but you'll hear directly from them. They have helped make this show what it is. We all started together uh, so long ago, and I can't wait to see uh, what else they keep doing in the world because we built something really beautiful and special. And once a part of the pod family, always a part of the pod family. And we're also joined by Janetta Elsie, one of the first people that I met in the streets in St. Louis. We spent every night, 400 days out in the street together uh, in Ferguson in the St. Louis region. And we've been close ever since. I wanted her to come help us as we are in this current moment. Think about the protests and race and justice and policing and help build our knowledge as we go into what's next. Let's go. Now, this is a special episode for a lot of reasons, because we have uh, two new people joining the news crew to help us understand all the things that we didn't know in the past week. And Sam's news is going to be different in this one. He just will uh, do it because he's not here for the recording, but Sam is is still very much here, uh, and we're excited to have his voice. I wanted to introduce you to D.R. Ballinger and Kaya Henderson. Kaya and DR are both two incredible people. Kai used to be the superintendent of DC Public Schools for a decade. Uh, DR hates when I say that she used to be the special assistant to Hillary Clinton in the uh, in the State Department, and she did the Benghazi Papers, but she did uh, and has done a, a host of other things. But I want them to tell us uh, about themselves, and I think that that will be the most powerful part of this. And then we'll go into the news. I want you to meet them. I know them. I think their voice is incredible, and I am excited to see what they bring to the pod and how they push us all to think about the world in a better place. So Kaya, I will turn it over to you uh, to tell us and tell the Pod family uh, who you are. Hey Pod Save the People, I'm Kaya Henderson. Uh, I'm super excited to be here. I am currently living in New York, uh, which is where I'm from, but spent more than 20 years in DC doing all kinds of education things. Um, In fact, I've spent all of my career in education and uh, was excited to serve as the Chancellor of DC Public Schools Uh, for the better part of 10 years, uh, where we turned around what was the lowest performing urban school district in the country at the time and made it the fastest improving. I'm excited to be here. I don't know. I'm I'm excited to chop it up a little bit and to talk current events and news and whatnot with all of you. Are there ever moments where you like miss being superintendent? You're like, I want to go back to be superintendent. Or is that like a, a part of your life that you're like, I did it. It was great. I'm like proud of it. What does that, what's that like? A little bit of both. I did it. It was great. I'm proud of it. Uh, super happy to be out of the public eye. That is really taxing. But then there are times when, you know, you're in it right now. There's a huge opportunity to kind of recreate what's going on in education. And sometimes I think, I wish I was there. I have tons of creative ideas. I wish I was still back in it, um, but I don't wish it that hard. (laughs) 
Uh, and Diara, what about you? I know that you being special assistant to Hillary in the State Department is not the only thing you've done. I have to remind myself that you used to be a prosecutor at one point in your life, uh, which I forget all the time. But can you tell us about you? Yes, I forget that on purpose because it was it was awful. But anyway, we'll save that for another day. But um, yeah, I worked I worked for Hillary Clinton for basically a decade. And one of those jobs was at the State Department. And it's pretty ridiculous. I think we see that level of ridiculousness now with the current administration is that, you know, political appointees do a whole bunch of things, some of which they had no business doing. I will raise my hand and say I was one of those people while I was at the State Department. I did things like criminal justice reform all around the world because, believe it or not, the United States government gives advice on criminal justice reform. It's crazy. Um, and so I worked in places like Bangladesh and Yemen and Liberia. Um, and really, though, because I, I was so close to the secretary, I was able to work with those different offices and USAID to really reimagine what development looked like in a lot of those places. Um, so that work was was incredible. That was just a piece of what I did during my my time with Hillary. I, I feel like I still work for Hillary. I do. Once a Hillary person, always a Hillary person. Um, recently, though, after the last campaign where I served as director of engagement, I started a social impact company called Maestra. And so that company was really built on the premise of this intersection and sweet spot between activism and social justice and also corporate philanthropy and what corporations should be doing and what they should look like inside and how that should reflect on the work that they do in the world. So that's just a, a little bit about me. I'm sure I'll get to tell all of you more and more. I think it's interesting because I'm an attorney and most of my career was spent kind of behind the scenes. So it's still weird to me to do anything public facing, really. Um, so you guys will have to be my my family in that um, as I get more and more comfortable talking about the work that I do. Boom. The pod family will get to know you over uh, the course of episodes, but I'm interested in, in what you learned in sort of seeing criminal justice systems. And what is interesting, I didn't even think about the fact that, Kai, you do, you are now helping sort of school systems and educators all across the world. That is like the work you do now. And DR, that is actually the work that you used to do is like helping countries sort of think about justice differently. What, how has that informed the way that you think about the world today, DR? Like the, not only sort of just going into countries and, and helping, but specifically around criminal justice. Our thinking then, and much of this obviously was like a lot of Hillary's theory of change, but it really was concentrating on women and families. Whether it was education or criminal justice reform, it was always how can we create a system where families and women in particular can thrive? Because if that is the outcome, then ultimately the society will be better for it. A lot of work that I did while I was at State was kind of like alternatives to incarceration and, and really trying to figure out how to have a, a justice system that actually reflected the culture and values of that particular country, region, um, and figuring out how you know, how to create alternatives and how to make and, and really how to rely on the people to figure out how they wanted to affect justice. Boom. Uh, before we go into the news, I did want to ask y'all about these fireworks. I don't know about where y'all are at, but the fireworks <laughs> are on and popping. I am like, if these and I support, I'm like, sign me up for the joy. But what is going Listen, on with the fireworks? First of all, I had a Karen moment, me being Karen, because... <laughs> DR is a black woman, y'all. DR is not. Did you call the police? No, I know I would never call the police, but this is what happened. It was kind of amazing. So I'm I'm like leaving my building. I live in Brooklyn, and you know all the white people are so fussy about the fireworks. Oh, the fireworks! It's so loud, and our dog is up all night, and da 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 da. I'm like, 
I didn't hear anything. There's nothing. Go to the coffee shop. There's still fussy white people talking about it. Oh, where did it, how did your dog do? Did you hear all the fireworks? But then I remembered we have soundproof windows. Uh-huh. I love it. So I didn't hear anything. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I am that person today because my privilege has allowed me to have soundproof windows. See, I didn't so even I know like, soundproof oh. windows. Are, you were prepared. These fireworks are, Kai, I don't know about where you are, but the fireworks. They are not in Midtown Manhattan. Kai, we're going to be real good friends, girl. We're all exercising a little privilege here. They are not. There are no fireworks in Midtown Manhattan, let me tell you. But all my friends in Harlem and in Brooklyn, I mean, my friends in D.C., everybody is talking about this. And there's a little conspiracy thing going on around Facebook that effectively is saying that the government, whoever, the police, whoever, are actually leaving stockpiles of fireworks in neighborhoods or selling to kids really cheaply um, so that they're, and they're massive fireworks, right? Like not a little. They are. They're like professional fireworks. That's right. And so people are saying, where are these kids getting this grade of fireworks? They can't afford this grade of fireworks. The theory is that, in fact, the government is dumping these into black and brown neighborhoods to desensitize us to this gunfire sort of sound, right? So that at some point when it all goes down, we'll just think, oh, it's the crazy fireworks, right? That over time we'll just become anesthetized to the sound. And when the heavy artillery comes into our neighborhoods, we won't know the difference. I will say, I don't, you know, the first couple of nights I was like, cool, fireworks, like, you know, New Year's, there are always fireworks in the neighborhood. You're like, okay, whatever. It's not New but Year's. But then I'm like, I'm like, this bang is really loud. I'm like, where did, are, is Amazon selling fireworks? Like, just where did the sheer stamina of them? You're like, this is like, we're going on night five, six, seven of fireworks. I, I really, yes. I was walking down the street uh, the other day and I saw a set of kids with them and it was just like, where did you get so many? Like, it's mm-hmm. not even one pop. It's just like a lot of them. Yeah. I don't know what's yeah. going on with the fireworks. Um, so we can uh, we can jump right into the news. So I'll start with my news. I never start, so this is like a, this is if, if you've been listening, uh, this is like throwback to the first episodes where I started the news. Uh, so my news is about landlords in LA who are evicting Black and Latino residents. So what the LA Times is reporting is that in the 10 weeks after Garcetti ordered a moratorium on evictions in mid-March, the the LAPD responded to almost 300 instances of potential illegal lockouts and utility shutoffs across the city. So what that means is that uh, there's a moratorium on evictions in LA for the time being, temporary moratorium, and landlords are still using this moment, using COVID, using sort of the protests to evict people. And people are calling the police, like either the landlord is calling the police or tenants are calling the police because they're about to get evicted from their house. Um, and what's interesting is that in LA, under normal circumstances, landlords can't just evict the tenant by themselves. Like they'd have to file some paperwork and the sheriffs would actually be a part of that process. Uh, but in this moment, because sort of everything's in flux, so many things are closed, uh, landlords are just cutting off the utilities and actually just like illegally evicting people. And the police are actually stepping in, negotiating this process. And I hadn't thought about it. It reminds me so much of what we've all been talking about is policing. 
people often don't think about the difference between the sheriff's office and the police department, but in most places, mm-hmm. the sheriffs do evictions, they do warrants, like that is sort of what they do. And because the sheriff is elected, that is a huge deal because there's almost no oversight. So uh, when they hurt people or harm people, you can't really tell the mayor to do anything because the sheriff's office does it. That made me think of this. But it also made me think about how in moments of crisis, we are reminded that people of color and poor people are often exploited even more because there is not that layer of attention. There's not that layer of sort of supervision or oversight because there's a crisis going on. So I'm happy that the LA Times reported this, but it also made me think about if this is happening in LA, this must be happening in other places across the country in ways that probably are being severely underreported. This is probably just like an enterprising reporter who who asked the questions and got this data. But yeah, I wanted to bring that to the pod because this is something that I had not as much visibility to, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, not surprised to hear this at all. And I think what I've been paying attention to is just how long it's taking folks to get their unemployment checks as well. So I know in some states like Kentucky, like they still haven't gotten them from March. So, I mean, we're in June. So people have been living without anything, really without any assistance whatsoever. You know, direct to your point, it is something that's being underreported. And it's also something that I can only imagine just, you know, people don't know what their rights are when it comes to tenants' rights. And some, a lot of states, like I know D.C., for example, has really strong tenant laws and um, protection laws. And I feel like L.A. had a no eviction. Yeah, there was a moratorium. There's a moratorium here in New York as well. But we're watching the news and seeing landlords literally taking the doors off of the hinges to get people out, um, turning off their utilities and doing all kinds of other things. And it's tragic, right? Where are people supposed to go right now? But then there's also, I mean, one side that I think I hadn't considered was some of these landlords are living paycheck to paycheck as well and rely on, I mean, some landlords are, you know, big corporate conglomerates and whatnot, but some of these landlords are property owners who need that rent check as much as the person needs to not pay it. And so when you see minority landlords who really need that money and they are, and it isn't coming in, that's a problem for them as well. It is interesting. And that makes me think about like, what does it mean to have a comprehensive package of support for people? So mm-hmm. like we support landlords, that's, that's, that's we support right. renters, right? Because like, yeah. though people are strapped, it doesn't, not an excuse, right? To like hurt that's other right. people. But that's, that's what right. happens when like, certainly this government is just like not supporting people in a wraparound way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see that, we see that the consequences of that play out. Yeah. I have some news. Uh, The New York Times just did a story last week about the effects of climate change on pregnancy risks and how Black mothers are disproportionately affected. Um, And I think lots of times we don't think about, as Black people, we're not as concerned about climate change sometimes as we need to be. But this research published by the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, was just released And it shows that pregnant women who are exposed to high temperatures or air pollution are more likely to have children who are premature, underweight, and stillborn. And African-American mothers and babies are harmed at a much higher rate than the population at large. The reason uh, is because minority communities are usually hotter than surrounding areas. And so we suffer from what's called heat island effect we're also more likely to be located near polluting industries. And so when you have higher temperatures, you get more premature births and lower birth weights. When you have greater exposure to pollution, smog, and then particles in the air, you get 
uh, greater preterm births, more low birth rates, and more stillbirths. And then the closer that moms live to power plants or plants that use garbage to produce energy, your risk of low and preterm births increase. Um, and the risks seem to be the greatest for black mothers. When, when you have premature births and low birth weight, you get brain damage in your young people and vulnerability to disease and just effects that last a lifetime. And when you think about the fact that black mothers are already more likely to have, you know, poorer health services when they go to hospitals, um, they already have greater health uh, pregnancy risks than white women do, this sort of compounds the effect. So we're more likely to live closer to power plants. We are less likely to have air conditioning. We're more likely to live in places that don't have green spaces where, you know, trees clean the air. And all of these things kind of compound with our systemic and institutional issues like less access to medical help and, and unequal levels of medical treatment. And so those things work together to make climate change a real significant impact on pregnant black mothers. In fact, um, this woman who's a, an organizer for Moms Clean Air Force, Catherine Garcia Flowers, says doing nothing about air pollution, which so clearly has a greater impact on black Americans, is racism in action. And I just thought this was really fascinating because, one, I didn't know the link between climate change and pregnancy risks. Um, and then to see so glaringly in the research that black mothers are most affected um, makes me really worried because when we think about who's on the front lines of climate change, it's usually not us. When we think about who's making the case for the changes that we need to make, nobody's really thinking about the impact on black and brown communities in the way that we need to. That's right. So many thoughts about this, obviously. Um, and also just, you know, personally, as someone who's going to be a mom later in life, um, probably in the next two years, just already thinking about the risks ordinarily with that, but then the risk compounded just being a Black woman. It's scary because the other thing we're seeing, Kai, is that like it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is or what your access That's right. to wealth is, you're still, the treatment is the same. Um, yeah. The impact is the same. I was doing some research on this. It's fascinating and infuriating that kind of the whole study of gynecology, it was all experimentation on enslaved That's right. women. That's right. So it's just like this whole practice of medicine that was really founded and evolved with Black women's bodies and the fact that like we are, you know, we are harmed most by it in its practice and the implications, I think, is, is something that um, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. Not surprising, but still hard to wrap your mind around it, because I think it also it's one of those things where it shows the, the direct link between not that we need more, but uh, the direct effects from slavery in this country and how we're still living with those effects and the results of it today. My other point there is there's a woman who is so incredible. Her name is actually Catherine Flowers, too. Yep. Like this, the woman that you noted in the article, um, the Catherine Flowers that I know does work in rural Alabama. She's actually like the environmental justice person for, for EJI, for Brian Stevenson in Alabama. She has her own nonprofit um, on her own, but what she does is she helps to figure out what kind of innovation can help Black folks that live in the rural South not live in sewage. Because if you're not living in a city or in a town where it's actually the, the government or whatever the development or real estate rules are there, they actually put in septic systems. If you live outside of those city limits, you have to put in your own septic system. Now, the issue is that they're expensive 
they're not sustainable. And the people that put in the septic system sometimes put them in so that they require extra maintenance. Oh, wow. It's Alabama, so we know how mm-hmm. that goes. <laughs> um, and so, but essentially, Black folks down there are living in sewage and waste. And now they're seeing in rural parts of Alabama basically like diseases, like tropical diseases that they've never mm. seen before and don't test for because we shouldn't have them in this country. So, Round, round, roundabout way um, of saying, yes, like I, I do see and know folks of color that are pushing their way to the front lines when it comes to environmental justice and climate change. Because, again, to your point, it impacts folks of color most. But yeah, Catherine Flowers, check her out. Both Catherine Flowers. Uh, <laughs> you know, what I didn't know uh, is that for the first time ever, the U.S. actually has standardized maternal mortality data in all 50 states. So before there had been some surveys and there had been some interesting analysis of this, but there wasn't standardized data. In 2003, the National Center for Health Statistics recommended that all the states add a standardized checkbox for maternal deaths because researchers noticed that they were not being coded correctly, so they couldn't be rolled up into national statistics. But it literally took until 2017 for all of the states to finally add the checkbox. Wow. So what it shows is what we already knew, right? Is that Black women fared the worst, dying two and a half times more than white women, uh, while Hispanic women uh, had the lowest rate of maternal mortality. And this sort of mimics what we also saw in the CDC's pregnant mortality surveillance system. That was good. It just was not as complete because all 50 states weren't having standardized coding. Mm -hmm. And that data was from 2007 to 2016 that showed that black mothers died at a rate of three times that of white mothers. And the Hispanic mothers had the lowest rate again, which was interesting, right? But it made me think about, you know, so much of this, and, and both of you actually understand this as people who've worked inside the government before, is the way we collect the data changes the way we even think about what solutions can look like. So like, I didn't even, it never even crossed my mind that like there wouldn't be a consensus on how to code the fact that like mothers are dying during childbirth, right? That like, that seems like such a, of course we collect that data, but I could see how like one place probably codes it as like maternal death. Somebody else probably codes it as like death in a hospital, you know, like Mm -hmm. all these things that like, when you roll it up, are really confusing. Yeah. And this is this reminder that the devil's in the details, but I didn't even think about what that means. It has also made me think about what else is probably possible now that we have standardized data and like how we can compare populations and, and things that were just impossible before. The other hard thing about the maternal mortality rate amongst black women is that I've not seen great papers help us understand what to do, right? That I know there's a study that that suggests that the quality of hospitals that black women often uh, go to are of not as high quality. So we need to change sort of that path. Uh, Also that black women often start prenatal care later because of the lack of access to health insurance. So those are things that we can work on. And I know Elizabeth Warren had a whole plan around uh, the mortality rate, which is really strong. Uh, But I'm interested to see how we like continue the conversation about solutions here. I mean, I think one of the things that I learned, I talked to Dr. Joya Creer-Perry, who is the founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. And two things that she said that were really stunning to me one was that only 20% of health outcomes are actually related to health care. Wow. In fact, 80% of what happens 
as about where you live and what you eat and whether you have a living wage and all of these sort of quality of life indicators, those actually have a greater impact on your health than the health care that you receive. Um, and the other thing that she said was that the medical industry or field is no longer looking at individual behavior. So did you have enough prenatal or early enough prenatal care and whatnot? But now they're starting to look at systems and so in the same way that you know we're having this conversation around a few bad apples or systemic racism right the question has been you know people aren't doing their healthcare behaviors but in fact there is systemic stuff like you live in a place that is hotter than other people's places right there are no green trees in your where you live you have asthma because so many black people have asthma and all of these things uh, don't have anything to do with your health care, but they actually will affect your infant mortality. Boom. 20% is wild. It is. It is. So for my news, I wanted to talk about and share what happened on Thursday with the, the DACA decision. So essentially in a five to four ruling, the Supreme Court said no to Donald Trump, a big N-O, which obviously made him upset because one of the Republican Supreme Court Justices, um, Chief Justice Robert actually went with the liberal judges, liberal in quotes, um, with, with this decision. So essentially, just taking a step back in terms of like what DACA is, um, it's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and it protects young people um, who came to this country uh, with their parents at a very young age, most cases as babies, um, and then a little bit later in life, they realize that they don't have citizenship. And so what DACA does is it protects them from immediate deportation, because obviously they'd be deported back to a country that they did not know or did not grow up in. Um, and it also helps them to get work permits and, and things like driver's licenses. Um, and so DACA is always kind of hanging in the balance. And so I think, you know, this, this fight with DACA isn't over, but this is a, definitely a great momentum building step for this movement. Um, and so... I thought it was important to talk about it, one, because it's a huge thing. And that means that these protections are still in place for these young people. It also just put something in my mind that I think is never top of mind for most folks, for most Americans, because it's boring. It's the courts. I got to thinking about how important court appointments are, particularly federal court appointments. I think it is fact that like Donald Trump has appointed more more judges to the federal bench than any president in the history of the United States. And he's also appointed more young judges to the bench than any president in the United States. So this basically strengthens the conservative courts because they have younger judges there that will stay there. Obviously, it's a federal appointments also, you should know, are lifetime appointments. It's really important that we pay attention to the court makeup. And actually, the right does a really good job of funding, making sure that they have federal judgeships and also keeping an eye on it. Just so we know, like 900 judges have lifetime appointments in this country. Um, and for context, in terms of what the Supreme Court hears versus what all the other federal courts hear, the Supreme Court reviews around 100 of the most significant cases out of nearly 30 million cases. Wow. The majority of the, the cases that are heard, because obviously not everything makes it to the Supreme Court, lies in the hands of these federal judges. So these judges are making laws, they're impacting policy. As of January 2020, Donald Trump had appointed 187 new federal judges. Pay attention to the courts, y'all. As the chancellor of DC Public Schools, we had DACA kids in our school system. 
And these young people, you know, are as American as anybody else. They grew up here. They go to school here. Many of them are, you know, working hard at the same time that they're going to school and, and supporting their families or contributing to their families. And, you know, for many of them, they don't find out that they're undocumented until they go to apply for college. And we've been telling them since they were, you know, in elementary school, you got to go to college. That's the way to access the American dream. And so many of them find out that they cannot so uh, this makes me think about a couple of things. One is that we need comprehensive immigration reform when Biden becomes president, because Lord knows we cannot do another anything of Trump. Uh, I'm hoping that this becomes like, I hope that they get in there and that like in a hundred days, we do all the things that people said were impossible, right? That like, you know, because say what you will about Biden, I think that the cabinet will actually be one of the most progressive we've ever seen in the country. I think that the staff will be, it'll be the Hillary people, it'll be the Bernie people, it'll be the Obama. Like, I think that, all of the people who have not been able to participate in politics at the federal level, but who are skilled and who, who are ready, mm-hmm. uh, I think that they will come back in droves. And, and DR, you know, and, and Kyle, you know, too, is that the brain drain at the Department of Everything, you know, <laughs> has been epic. Yeah. And, like, I think that the, the departments will be fully staffed with incredible people, so I believe that. So I'm hoping that, like, one of the things that's just a priority is that we have a comprehensive pathway to citizenship, that like we treat people as people, that we humanize people in the process, right? I think all those things are important. I think that there was something when I think about immigration I wanted to bring here because I saw a poll recently and we have not moved public sentiment along on ICE as I thought we did. That like when you poll people around, you know, should cities ban ICE from renting out prisons and jails? Mm-hmm. Like people are not, it's actually just not, it's sort of split. It's like 50-50. It's just not overwhelmingly like obviously ICE is bad in the way that I think in my friend circles, people are like ICE. You know, ICE detains more people today than any time in the history of ICE. ICE doesn't own enough property to do it. So they detain uh, people in uh, cages, as you saw with the kids. They mm-hmm. run out local prisons and jails. And it, it reminds me that like a lot of people still participate in this idea that uh, people who've immigrated to the country are like stealing jobs and that like people have to be extra ordinarily good at something to be worthy of like that these sort of like harmful narratives actually seep into the public imagination in ways that like I took for granted until I saw this poll recently that made me, I was like, wow, like these narratives about uh, the quote danger of immigration actually like took a lot more hold than I thought. So I don't have an answer here, but it did make me think about like the power of the storytelling about both what it means to be a citizen and people's like right to be citizens and, and how citizenship is not something that you should have to prove in some random test to the United States government, right? right. That we should think about past the citizenship that honor people's experience, but also just how dangerous and how damaging these narratives are to people who've immigrated to the country. And, you know, as you know, it's black and brown people often who get the brunt of it. So mm-hmm. when you think about all the travel bans and you think about the sanctions of this administration, you see that it like disproportionately is countries that are black and brown. I love this point, Jare, about the narrative, because for my family, like I'm third generation Mexican on my mom's side. And my great grandparents actually never naturalized because they love Mexico. Like they were here. They came here as migrant workers. They made their living. But it wasn't like this country is so amazing and we need to be a part of it. You know, people are coming here for their livelihood. People are coming here to protect themselves from violence. Yes, there. I mean, I'm sure there is somewhere in that a gratitude for the United States. But I think there's also this notion that 
people aren't proud of where they're coming from and people aren't proud of what their heritage is and that you have to do this kind of like assimilationist construction when it comes to the folks that are in this country. I mean, to your point, DeRay, about leaping into action in the first 100 days, we should have these policy proposals done already, right? We should have a clear idea of who's doing what, when, where, why, and how, who we're appointing to cabinet positions so that they can start to get their staffs together because literally this is going to hinge on being able to move in quickly and start to enact policy as quickly as possible. And I'm not sure that we're there yet. Uh, I think that there are a lot of folks who are, I mean, uh, a lot of my friends who have worked for the federal government are are busy on the campaign trail, but how do we make sure that we are both campaigning and laying the foundation so that we just hit the ground running on these things when Mr. Biden wins? Yeah. Part of laying the foundation is actually moving public sentiment because it has not moved as much as we thought it did, right? Yeah. So like, you know, in the, in the same way that the protests have certainly moved public sentiment about the police in a really dramatic shift, we have not done that. Like, I was actually shocked when I saw some of the latest numbers on ICE. It really bummed me out because I, I thought that, like, the cages were going to be enough to move the sentiment, even if they didn't move the president. Uh, but that wasn't the case. Yeah. Well, the thing is... We're not talking about the cages anymore. We're not talking about children in cages. We're not talking about ICE raids anymore because there are so many other things distracting us. And so even with the recent DACA decision, people are like, woohoo, great, yay, and then keep it moving. And so how do we keep this issue kind of front and center so that people can have, you know, immediate outrage and be willing to act on this? Oh. Hey, this is Sam. And today I want to talk about police foundations. So you may be asking yourself, what is a police foundation? You may be aware of the national conversation right now around the need to defund the police and shift resources from police departments into community-based alternatives that are far better, far more effective, and not violent in responding to issues in communities. Um, all of that is true. But it is also true that there is a set of funds that goes into police departments today uh, that doesn't come from the city budget. Instead, that pot of funds comes from police foundations. Now, police foundations, usually there'll be a police foundation in a given city. So there's a Los Angeles police foundation, a Seattle police foundation, etc. And an investigation, a recent investigation called Corporate Backers of the Blue, How Corporations Bankroll U.S. Police Foundations, did a deep dive into these police foundations to better understand where they get their money and how they use that money to fund police departments across the country. And what they found was that there's a set of extremely wealthy corporations uh, that routinely donates to police foundations. Uh, everyone from Amazon to Bank of America to Wells Fargo to Target to Chevron have donated, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases, millions of dollars, to local police foundations. And what do those police foundations do with that money? Well, it turns out, in places like Baltimore, the police foundation is actually the entity that bought that surveillance plane that is flying over Baltimore and surveilling everybody, especially black folks, in the city. Uh, in Los Angeles, the police foundation helped the police department purchase a contract with Palantir, which is a company uh, that provides predictive policing technologies uh, that reinforce existing racist practices in policing. 
In Philadelphia, the police foundation bought militarized weapons like long guns, drones, and ballistic helmets for the police department. And in Atlanta, the police foundation helped fund a surveillance network with over 12,000 cameras across the city. So all of that's to say that the network and the ecosystem of police funding actually extends beyond the amount of money that the city says that they spend on policing in their budget. In many cases, it extends to money that is flowing to police departments from big corporations and funneled through police foundations that actually participates in buying some of the most egregious weapons and equipment and contracts and tactics that police departments are using against black and brown communities today. Uh, and therefore, our focus has to be on all of the different elements in this ecosystem to make sure that that money isn't able to continue flowing to police departments, uh, that corporations and police foundations are held accountable uh, for these actions, and that cities uh, ultimately are making the decision uh, to shift resources fundamentally away from police departments uh, and into communities. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. 
There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. And we also have a special guest contributor, Janetta Elsie, who's one of the first people that I met in the streets of Ferguson. She and I were together every single night during the protest uh, when we were in the street for 400 days. And she's coming on to talk to us about what's going on in this moment. And she'll be on a whole host of episodes as well as we sort of build out the context for the current climate of protests, a conversation about race and justice. Netta! <laughs> what's up? It's a long overdue. Welcome to the pod. Yes, finally. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of y'all that don't know, Netta and I have uh, been together one way or another since the first time I stepped out into the street. Netta was uh, was in the street before me in St. Louis and uh, she was one of the people who was helping people in the early, early days of the Ferguson protests, the earliest days, helping them organize uh, around the gas station, the QT, that does not exist anymore, uh, and we have been uh, close ever since. So excited to have her on the pod to help us figure out what's going on. Uh, thanks for coming, Etta. No problem. Thank you for having me. So can you, you know, the world <laughs> is is sort of in flux right now. There's so much going on. How do you make sense of what's happening? As somebody who was in the street for 400 days, you know, and I haven't heard people even talk really about the protests in Ferguson that in so many ways laid the foundation for our generation being in the streets. How do you make sense of what's happening right now? I make sense of this moment by knowing that if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. (laughs) So this moment is not a shocker to me. I've been planning for this moment probably since the 2016 elections. Um, prepping for the worst case scenario, Trump's election. And I thought about direct action and organizing and wanted to do more to bring those real life solutions I learned in the streets of Ferguson to folks who would just be being activated by this election and subsequent presidency. So just thinking and planning ahead, like what would new people who did not come out in the streets in 2014 actually need to survive and sustain themselves in the street? and just really went after that creative track in my mind if I could have a conversation with myself in 2014, you know? And I felt like people would definitely be back in the streets after the resistance kind of weakened and um, disappeared, I guess. I don't know what you say about where the resistance went, but I know that it isn't 400 days in the streets like Ferguson, you know? And I did not expect the pandemic to coincide with police murders, nor did I expect them to stalk black people who may or may not be socially distanced. But the murders and the retaliatory behavior against protesters definitely aren't shocking. And it's some of the same stuff we saw in Ferguson happening all over this country. Now, you know, a lot of people have definitely asked you, I'm sure they have certainly asked me, well, what's different about this? Like, what's different about... Uh, what happened in St. Louis in 2014, that this moment feels different. What do you say to those people? They're kind of right. It does feel different. Um, But in 
a lot of ways, it actually feels the exact same. Um, watching the police do the exact same tactics that they did with us in Ferguson, kettling protesters to one side or directing the protest, actually, based on how they're blocking protesters in the streets of D.C., at least. It all looks very familiar. What is different is we now have a president that actually uh, front facing, at least, is absolutely against the protest <laughs> and i can say whatever i want about president 44 but 45 he just doesn't give a damn so we're also seeing a police force and police unions and police foundations all these folks who protect police are empowered by that and you can definitely tell the difference in how the police in 2014 we're dealing and brutalizing protesters versus the 2020 version. Now, what what lessons did you learn uh, in Ferguson? Um, you know, I learned <laughs> something that as an Aries, if there are folks who are interested in the Zodiac, <laughs> I am an Aries and I am very naturally confrontational. And in the streets and in this work, confrontation is absolutely necessary. And it's not as if it's, you know, go at each other's throats, which it definitely can be. But at least on this side, I feel that we can fight about our ideas and fight about our methods. But the general consensus that I get is that we all absolutely love black people. And that's why we are out here doing the work for our people. I also would just say as a black woman, it's important that you say what you have to say and you leave it at that. Um, don't apologize or placate to authority figures. Don't make yourself smaller to fit in. Say what you have to say. <laughs> and the last point is that integrity and authenticity will take you as far as you need to go. And both require a lot of personal awareness. And how have you grown since the protest? I think about how, you know, I've grown uh, since the <laughs> protest, but how have you grown <laughs> since being out on the street for 400 days and, and you know, <laughs> I thought we'd be back here. I didn't know we'd be back here so soon. Uh, but yeah, how have you grown? Let's see. I mean, shit, I'm just literally older. So in 2014, I was 25. It just turned 25. Had just lost my mother. So I was freshly grieving. Had just lost my friend, Stefan Averyhart, who was killed by the police in St. Louis City in February of 2014. So I was grieving that loss. And by the time the protest came around in 2014, in August... I was so mad at the world. It was just almost like it was just the perfect timing for everything. I was so fearless back then and fearless and naive at that. You know, you just, you live and you learn and you figure things out. Um, you have experiences professionally or personally that definitely alter your personality. And the only thing I could do is just take that as a moment of self-awareness and pour back into myself. I spent a lot of time reading. Um, I spent a lot of time being introspective and latching on to things that made sense in my soul. I learned how to meditate. <laughs> I have learned self-soothing methods instead of being just so angry. I just honed in on who I am, I feel. Which is probably something people are doing at 25 instead of like, you know, fighting the police in the street. What advice do you have for people who are coming to this work around racial justice, around the police, 
uh, for the first time. What's your advice to them? Um, <laughs> my advice to folks who are just now getting out in the streets, uh, first, find your people. Um, find the people who have your same shared values and worth ethic um, and have some integrity about themselves and their work and go do work with them. I definitely believe in grassroots organizing as a powerful mechanism for the world and for our cities and for our states. And I understand that local power is where it's, you know, it's where it's at. So I definitely encourage folks to find their own people doing work that they already care about. I would also say just be yourself um, and how you choose to resist and show up. Now is not the time to be holding back or making yourself smaller to fit in. Um, everyone can show up in this space and be themselves. And yeah, black folks have just earned peace. You know, we just do the things that center you after you're done doing this work in the streets. So up your self-care game, truly. And if you don't know what it is or you haven't started, I suggest you Google. Is there anything that you're worried about in this moment? Are there any things that like keep you up at night or that you are like, you know, we might miss the moment if, like, I don't know, what, what, what's the other side? Uh, I mean, yes, let's be realistic, right? So, like, I was talking to Elle the other day, um, Elle, our friend in Atlanta, who is organizing um, back and forth in her city, and we were talking about just the inexperienced protesters who are out there who have not gone through direct action training or any sort of trainings that would put you in a safer mindset when you're out in the streets doing these type of actions against the police or state violence. Um, and I think that that's just a, a result of we're in a pandemic, right? So like, it's not the same as 2014 in Ferguson where the coalition meeting would happen. And then in the coalition meeting, you find out who else is doing what work. You find so-and-so over here, Reverend Sekou, he used to have those good direct action trainings in the basement of the church. And that's where folks went and learned how to not be so fearful when they're outside, you know? And so there's definitely an experience but it's also one of those things where you live and you learn. So I'm worried about that, for sure. I worry about the new folks who are outside and might get hurt. Netta, are you hopeful in this moment? <laughs> I'm incredibly hopeful. I'm hopeful because in the streets, or at least in the streets of D.C., we are seeing so many young people outside. And granted... In 2014, I was 25, so I was those young people. <laughs> but my sister's age group, my sister's 20, her peers, you could definitely tell that those are the kids who are outside. Like, my sister and her friends, they get it. And they're just 20 years old. At 20, I wasn't having these conversations. At 20, I wasn't talking about dismantling white supremacy. At 20, I wasn't talking about defunding the police and investing in communities, you know, like I had no idea about those ideas at 20. So to see 17, 18, 19 year old kids out in the street, at least in DC for sure, it absolutely makes me hopeful because these are kids who watched what we went through six years ago and they grew up with that. Some of them grew up hearing their parents say disparaging things about the protests and had a different thought. Some of them heard their parents be racist and they had a different thought. Some of them heard their families be respectable and buy into respectability politics, and they chose to have a different thought. And those kids are outside right now. 
Um, so yes, I'm super hopeful. They couldn't believe in the fairy tale of America. Like America wouldn't even let them get to that part. <laughs> and I feel like that's something that millennials kind of touched on, but they've seen everything for what it is from the start since they were children. And it's not their job to fix it, but they were born fed up. Boom. Boom. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt at 3 a.m., at all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD, streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring. Full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And now my conversation with Joanna Schwartz, professor of law at UCLA, one of my heroes who understands how we think about policing, how the structures of policing are are built and maintained, and somebody I learn from every time I hear a talk. Let's go. Professor Schwartz, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, this is one of those episodes that is a learning episode for me and listeners because I first came across you on Twitter when I was asking a question I had tweeted about the Garner case because I was trying to understand it better, and I had come across it in some of the stuff. And you know that we have the only database of use of force policies and policing contracts and all this stuff. And you replied, and we hopped on the phone, and then I was like, whew, there's even more I don't understand. Um, so I wanted to start with how did you even get into studying the police as an area of expertise? You're one of a handful of professors who actually studies policing. So how did you get into that? And then I want to jump into uh, some of your studies. I was a uh, police misconduct civil rights lawyer in New York City starting uh, in 2002. So it was the post 9-11 New York. And I was a couple years out of law school and started working on a bunch of police misconduct cases and also one of the class actions against the officers on Rikers Island challenging excessive force across the New York City jails. And I was working, you know, hard and fast as you do when you're in litigation. But while I was bringing these cases, there were also questions that popped up for me. So 
I was interviewing a bunch of corrections officers about their disciplinary history and litigation history. And I couldn't find anything about their litigation history in their personnel files. And then when I asked them whether they'd been sued before, some of them didn't even remember. Or if they remembered, they didn't remember what the facts of the case were or what the result was of the litigation. And at the time, that struck me as really odd, (laughs) that we could be working so hard on these lawsuits um, and so much money could be spent by the city of New York in defending these cases and paying out settlements and judgments. And the individual officers didn't remember anything about the facts of the cases or the results of the case. So if we're trying to deter officers, how does it come that they don't even have that basic information? Um, And other questions like that kept percolating while I was in practice. There was another client who I represented who had been beaten up by an officer and the officer was fired from the department, but then made a six-figure settlement offer to my client. And my client asked me, who's paying the check in this case? And it's not a question that I had actually really thought about before. I didn't know who was paying the check. And we fought the city to find out. This is a little town in Westchester County. And it turned out that the town that had fired the officer was nevertheless paying the six-figure settlement in the case. So when I got out of practice and I started in uh, legal academia, I started spending that time trying to answer the questions that were really interesting to me while I was in practice. And it seems like each empirical question that I answer about the realities of civil rights litigation just begs another question (laughs) to ask and answer about what's happening on the ground in these cases and why the Supreme Court's doctrine gets it so wrong, misunderstands so completely what these cases are about and how they're brought. There we go. How did you get to things like Lexapol, right? Which is one of the things that I first understood that you were studying. Taking that experience that you had with this case about settlements um, and understanding like where the cost came from, how did you then, was it was it like you just started digging and you were like, whoo, qualified immunity and whoo, <laughs> Lexapol. Like, how did, how did that happen? Sort of. So one question that was, interesting to me was when police are sued, who ultimately pays, inspired by one of my clients who wanted to know the answer to that question in their own case. So I studied this question by looking at 81 jurisdictions across the country over a six-year period and found that officers paid 0.02% of the dollars that were paid to plaintiffs in these cases. And then the next question was, well, if officers aren't paying, who's paying? And where's the money coming from? And does it have any impact on the police department's budget or the policymakers within the police department um, who are making the decisions that play some role in these incidents occurring? So there I started looking at budgets um, across 100 different jurisdictions in the U.S. and trying to understand where the money came from. And I looked in part at large cities. And in part, I looked at small places that typically rely on outside liability insurance to pay these costs. And as part of that research, the name Lexapol came up as a resource for policy and training that could reduce insurance premiums if a city or a small town purchased Lexapol products, their insurance premiums could reduce. And so... I just found mention of that there. And then my colleague, Ingrid Egley, who studies immigration, was looking at immigration policies 
around the country and saw Lexapol's copyright stamp at the bottom of the policies that she was looking at. So she and I got to talking one day about what this thing Lexapol was, and we decided to try to figure it out. That's fascinating. And what's the top line about Lexapol? You know, we know... Lexapol, because we launched this project recently, and we actually launched the initial part of it a while ago, and realized that so many of the California use of force policies all look the same, like same format, uh, same language. And then we we noticed that in the bottom left-hand corner, it said they were written by Lexapol. We were like, we didn't even know there was like a company that wrote these policies. And I remember actually being in Portland when Chief Outlaw was a chief of police, met with her about some issues. And you know she told me that one of the reasons why Oakland had a relationship with Lexapol at one point was because they were quicker than the cities. That like she was like, if I had to wait for the city attorney to do an analysis or like to turn around a new policy, it would just take forever. Whereas like Lexapol could just easily turn it out. You know, is is Lexapol growing? Do we know a list of departments that use Lexapol? Is Lexapol sort of dangerous in the space? Like, can you help us for those of us who have never heard of it? How would you explain it? So Lexapol is a private for-profit company that writes police policies and produces police trainings for law enforcement agencies. At the last count that um, Ingrid and I did, uh, Lexapol provided policies to 95% of California law enforcement agencies and over 3,000 law enforcement agencies across the country. They recently acquired a news site that also sells things like tasers and guns called Police One. And they have said in a press release that a combination of their Lexapol products plus this news source has contact with more than 7,000 law enforcement agencies and more than 2 million officers. So it's a massive presence that is largely silent or unknown to people thinking about policing that guide police policies and trainings. And I think that Lexapol does perform a valuable service, particularly to smaller law enforcement agencies. And if you look at the agencies that use Lexapol, they are, for the most part, smaller agencies. When you think about what a small agency with two officers or five officers would need to do to keep abreast of changes to state statutes and case law, you can understand why Lexapol is an appealing product because they tout their services as providing up-to-date policies And they have a way of communicating with their departments so that if there is an updated policy, you simply have to click a button and the city's policy manual is updated to what Lexapol describes as the most up-to-date version of the law. And there is no federal system or product um, or state-level product or product made by uh, nonprofit organizations that provide similar resources. So Lexapol found a gap in our regulatory system of police, and they have exploited it. And it does provide a valuable service to small law enforcement agencies to the extent that they couldn't do this on their own. But we also have a lot of concerns about the ways in which Lexapol delivers its product and crafts its product. So Lexapol describes itself as focused on risk management understood in broad terms. 
risk to the officer, risk to the community, financial risk from litigation. But if you look more closely at their materials and their descriptions of the forces that guide them, they are really primarily concerned with reducing liability risk. And that is what they promote as the risk that they reduce. That can mean, for example, in use of force, they are opposed to limitations on use of force policies because they want officers to have maximum discretion because they don't want officers or cities to be subject to liability if officers violate their policies. So that focus on risk management can have really negative consequences for the other notions of risk, like risk to the community. They also operate with very little transparency. After months of searching for information about Lexapol, we could find little about any of Lexapol's employees, few of any so-called experts that help shape and craft their policies. And so although they say that they consult a wide variety of sources when determining their policies, they don't make any of those sources publicly available. And they also don't give small cities who are their subscribers any information about alternatives to the policies that they promote. So as one example, there is a variety of views across law enforcement agencies about whether police officers should be able to view video of shootings before they are interviewed. In Lexapol's view, they should be able to view those videos. But there's a lot of law enforcement agencies that hold a different view. And in Lexapol's policy, they don't provide any information about those alternative points of view. So if one of their subscribers, a small town or city with only a few officers, isn't completely happy with their policy, it's essentially a take it or leave it kind of scenario because the small jurisdiction really doesn't have the resources to do their investigations on their own. And I guess that leads to a third big problem with Lexapol, which is that it makes it very hard for communities to engage about what policies they want that govern their law enforcement officers. The role of community involvement in those important questions is at the forefront right now, more than ever viewed as a critically important part of accountable and democratic policing. But the way in which Lexapol's products work, it's very difficult to amend those policies. Anytime you make an adjustment to a policy, the next update will override those changes. And so buying into the ease of Lexapol means opting out of local community engagement with the policymaking process. That's really interesting. I think about the work that we have done recently around policy changes and and how do we make sure that next week when there's an update, all the things that we got cities to commit to isn't just undone. That's a really good push. Unless Lexapol changes or has changed the way in which they update, if it's not Lexapol that's made the change, but a local jurisdiction that's made the change, it will be overridden in the next Lexapol update. That's so wild. Now, is the list of 3,000 somewhere so people can see? (laughs) It is not. They do not have it available on their materials. If you go on Lexapol's website, there will be some descriptions of success stories 
by departments. And so there is some identification of departments, but they do not make available that list. We, Ingrid and I, sent public records requests to the 200 largest law enforcement agencies in California. And through those public records requests, we're able to identify which among those 200 jurisdictions subscribed to Lexapol and had Lexapol policies. But the only way we were able to do that was to go city by city uh, making those public records requests. Got it. Well, maybe we can work together because we know a fair number of them now because we saw in this last study. Can you? So another thing that's been a hot topic has been qualified immunity. (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) Supreme Court just said they're not going to take on this case. You know, I've seen a lot of people be frustrated by it. But honestly, I think a lot of people don't understand it. I think the phrase doesn't necessarily convey what it is. Can you help us both understand, like, what is qualified immunity, why it matters, how we got here? And then I want to talk to you about some ideas that I've heard percolate around how we undo it that don't necessarily require the Supreme Court. I absolutely agree. Qualified immunity is a doctrine that is not well understood. And I agree that the words qualified and immunity put together make people's eyes glaze over. Something about the two of those words put together, it seems hard to understand. And I think it's really important to understand. It's a doctrine that I have been thinking about for the past 10 years or so. And so I'm really happy to see it on more people's minds um, and radars, but I recognize that it's really important to understand what it is. So qualified immunity was created by the Supreme Court in 1967. And when it was created, the Supreme Court described it as a good faith defense that was really drawn from state law, um, good faith defenses in false arrest cases. If you arrest someone and don't have probable cause but had good faith to think that you did, then there's no constitutional violation. And that idea of a good faith defense was the inception of qualified immunity. But then the Supreme Court expanded it. In a decision in 1982, a case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court said the question for qualified immunity is no longer whether an officer had good faith. Instead, it is whether the law was clearly established. And the court said, we don't care about the officer's good intent anymore. They could have bad intent. And the reason that they got rid of that good faith idea was because they wanted to shield officers from the costs and burdens of what they called insubstantial cases. And they thought that taking the officer's subjective intent out of the mix would mean that cases could get dismissed earlier. Then, since 1982, the court has issued a bunch of additional qualified immunity cases, and I won't take you through every one, but essentially, between then and now, the Supreme Court has narrowed more and more the definition of what clearly established law is. And today, in order to defeat a motion for qualified immunity, a plaintiff has to find a prior case, either from the Supreme Court or from a court of appeals, in which virtually identical facts were held to be unconstitutional. And the court, the Supreme Court, has made the task of finding a prior case on point even more difficult 
because the court has told courts of appeals and other lower courts that they can grant qualified immunity without ruling on whether there was a constitutional violation. So essentially, they're telling plaintiffs, you have to find a prior case with virtually identical facts and have those facts be held unconstitutional. And then tell courts, you don't have to rule on the constitutionality of defendant's behavior. You can just grant qualified immunity. So it makes it more and more difficult for plaintiffs to find cases that will be sufficient to defeat qualified immunity. So what would it, what's an example of like something where the police would be like, oh, I have qualified immunity, and then it's not clearly defined and they lose. Like, can you get, just walk us through like a real, like an example? Sure. Well, there was just a case called Baxter versus Bracey, which was the case that the Supreme Court declined to hear, where there was a person who was suspected to have burglarized a home. The officers were looking for him and they ended up finding him. He was sitting. Uh, on the floor with his arms raised, and they released their police dog on him, and the police dog maimed him. The officers raised qualified immunity and said that they were entitled to qualified immunity because there was not a prior case with the same facts where a court said that the conduct was unconstitutional. And the plaintiffs in that case pointed to a prior case where there was a person who was on the ground who had surrendered, where it was unconstitutional to release their police dog on that person. And as far as the Court of Appeals was concerned, a case where a person was lying down and surrendering was not sufficient to provide notice to the officers that a person sitting down with their hands up and sticking a dog on a person under those circumstances was unconstitutional. So even minor differences in the facts of the two cases can be enough for courts to grant qualified immunity. Boom. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Uh, I learned so much and I can't wait for more people to be exposed to your work. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I really admire and love everything you're doing and I'm thrilled to be in conversation with you. Thank you for listening to Posse of the People. Please subscribe and review and tell your friends. And I wanted you to hear directly from Brittany and Clint. Pod family forever. What's going on, everybody? So some news for me this week, which is different than the type of news that you usually get from me, is that this is going to be my last episode with Pod Save the People. It has been an incredible ride, and I'm really proud of what we've built over the last three years. I'm so grateful to Brittany, Sam, and DeRay, for being incredible thought partners, friends, and just personal inspirations to me. And I'm so thankful to our producers behind the scenes, Jess and Brock, for helping us put out something every week that we could all be proud of. I appreciate everyone at Crooked Media for the way they supported us, and everyone who has ever downloaded, listened, and shared an episode. It just means more than you can ever know. When DeRay invited me to be a part of this three years ago, I could have never imagined what it would become and how amazing our listeners would be. As you all know, I recently graduated, so this is kind of a time of professional transition for me on all fronts. I've got some new projects I'll be working on moving forward, so even though you won't hear from me on the pod every week, I'll always be a friend and a fan of Pod Save the People. Thank you all so much for everything. It truly has been an honor. Hey y'all, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, at Ms. Pack Yeti on all social media. 
I cannot believe that over the last three years, Pod Save the People has become more than a show. It has become a beautiful, intentional, and active community full of folks who are pursuing justice at every single turn. It's not just those of us in front of the mic. It's each of you who has listened, shared, posted, given us feedback and commentary. Come to one of our shows and let your friends and family know about us. I wish I had the words to tell you just how grateful I am that you let us into your hearts and into your homes and into your ears every single week. Sadly, this is my last show, but I can tell you that just like this community, the work is bigger than one podcast and we will all continue to do the work together. I'll let you know about my next projects and what I have coming up, but most importantly to DeRay and Sam, to Clint and Jess, to Brock and Justine, to Steven, to the entire Crooked family, and to each of you, I am deeply grateful. I am deeply privileged to have shared these last three years with you, and I am deeply honored that the work that we're doing will continue. Just remember that we are so close to freedom. It is absolutely within our grasp, and it's going to take all of us to get there. From the very, very bottom of my heart, I thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for being a part of this family. Signing off. I love y'all. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.